0: it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at christianquestions.com. Today's topic is, is God's wrath stronger than his love? Part two, coming up in this episode... Having reviewed many scriptures that seem to paint God as vengeful and angry in part one, we now have our mission clearly defined for part two. It's to find the truth of God's character and plan as we consider the whole Bible. What we'll find can change lives, but only if we are willing to listen. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: And Julie, a long-time CKU contributor, is also with us. Hi, gentlemen. Jonathan, what is our theme text for today's episode?
0: James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow.
1: Our last episode focused in on some harsh Old Testament accounts that featured God pronouncing death and destruction to those who permeated great evil. Bible skeptics parade these accounts as proof that God is merciless, evil, and even statistic. While the Old Testament does put these kinds of judgments into perspective, the ability to draw a full conclusion regarding God's purposes is not complete. We need the rest of the story. We need to understand how the New Testament is built on top of, but does not replace, the Old Testament. So today, we continue looking into the whole Bible to accurately measure God's love against his wrath. And what we will find is the rest of the story, as we apply the role Jesus played as a man to all those who suffered and died before his earthly mission. So before we get started with all of this, we need to just go back and do a brief recap, a brief review of some of the things that we were talking about last week. So Jonathan, we had a theme running through last week and it was understanding God's wrath. Let's 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 start that review.
0: We cannot understand the wrath of God unless we are willing to comprehend the purposes and the character of God.
2: God has a plan. He's not impetuous or egotistical. He's wise, just, and loving.
0: God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool of righteousness.
2: God is moral, his morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach that to us.
0: God uses evil, he is not evil, nor does he fall prey to it. For God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan.
1: So we've got these four points, and if you remember last week when we were talking about these four points, we didn't put everything in complete perspective because we didn't have the complete answers. So here are some of the conclusions that we came to last week, but again, there's more to it than what we're just putting out here. Julie, what's our first conclusion from last week?
2: Well, many people proclaim God to be a monster, but to do that is to ignore many specific events and social structures in history.
0: And the fact that God does not let sin go without consequences tells us that he is ultimately in control. God often uses the rules of sinful world to deal out consequences for heinous acts.
2: God's wrath has a foundation. It's wisely and powerfully built upon the principles of justice and love. Justice identifies and exposes the consequences of sin. And love uses this exposure as a teaching tool of eternal lesson of righteousness for
0: all. God's wrath should never be taken out of context of his ultimate plan for the greater good of all humanity.
1: So we have all of these conclusions. And the idea is to look at the Old Testament and say, okay, we need to back away from the specific event we may be looking at to condemn or judge and say, What is the larger context of all of this? What is God's ultimate plan in this Old Testament perspective? And so as we did that, what we saw is it wasn't nearly what people make it out to be, but there's got to be still more to the story. So we need to go from Old Testament to New Testament. So to go to to do that, Let's go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The Old Testament ends with a similar theme of death and destruction for those who do wrong, but with one major addition. So we're going to look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. But Jonathan, let's just take verse 1 for right now.
0: For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts.
2: Well, so the Old Testament ends just like some of the examples we read about last week. God is still mad at evildoers, and which you know does make sense because of course no one wants the wicked to prosper, but we have this destruction, burning sounds
1: scary. It does sound scary. And it should sound scary because God's wrath, when you analyze it, is something to be afraid of. However, we need to put that scariness and that fear into a greater context so let's go a little bit further with the malachi scripture as we unfold this jonathan let's go to verses 2 and 3 of malachi 4
0: but for you who fear my name the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings you will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which i preparing saying saying the lord of hosts well we see there's a ray of hope
2: Sure, there's a ray of hope, but that's for those who fear, which means reverence my name. So, seemingly, this is only the hope goes only for the faithful. The wicked get to be ashes, another burning reference, under the soles of your feet. So, again, I, I get that we don't really want the bad guys to win, but our consciences uncomfortably wonder exactly what you have to do to be considered wicked. You know, nobody wants to be judged and found guilty, but how bad is bad and just how good? Good. Do we need to be so that we aren't the under the feet? Right. We so, want to be the feet, not the under the feet.
1: So we get to be good instead of bad. And look, it, right. th- this is this is an important question, and the answer to this question all comes down to one very specific word. It comes down to obedience. We're gonna we're gonna develop that as we go through this, but it's re- important to realize that wickedness meets with destruction that's really what this is showing and yes there is a ray of hope and yes it is seemingly only for those who are faithful at this point let's go a little further with these verses in malachi and remember folks these verses that we're reading in malachi are the very last verses of the old testament so jonathan malachi 4 verses 4 to 6
0: remember the law of moses my servant even the statutes and ordinances which i commanded him in horeb for all israel behold I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse.
1: So this is the very last reference in the Old Testament. And this last reference in the Old Testament, there are two individuals that are referenced. We have Moses the deliverer, and then other references to Elijah and his mission.
2: Why do those two get singled out when there's so many other prophets in the Bible?
1: Well, and that's an important question. And the the, the answer to that is going to be because they are pictured at the beginning of the New Testament. So you have a, a pause in a story and then a picking up with the New Testament part of this. And we're going to get to that actually in just a moment here. So here's what happens. Malachi is written, and that's the end of the Old Testament. Just like that, it says, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. it's like, wow, that's a great, inspiring end to the Old Testament. 400 years go by, and 400 years later, the story from Book 1, which we're going to, Book 1 we're calling the Old Testament, picks up with the very first event of Book 2, which we call in the New Testament, as the angel Gabriel tells Zacharias that he's going to have a son and describes the work of his son as follows. So the very first event of the New Testament are these words, Luke 1, verses 16 to 17.
0: And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord your God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, the first act of the New Testament is repeating the words of the last verse of the Old Testament. See the connection.
2: Okay, so if we have this 400 intervening years, what's happening between the Old Testament and the New Testament where we don't get any information?
1: You're right. We don't get any information. And there's lots happening, and the bottom line is none of it is good because there's a lot of Alexandrian and Egyptian influence on the Jewish people, and they become polluted once again with pagan thinking and pagan ritual that that creeps in to the Judaism and the purity of the Jewish law. And why didn't God
0: intervene? Because that would be a violation of free will. They still got to choose who they would follow.
1: So we've got that as is, is, is what's happening. So, Jonathan, you'd mentioned that Luke 1, 16 and 17 are, are, are the words that the Old Testament ended with, the New Testament begins with. Well, remember, Moses was the other one. That was about Elijah. Moses was the other one mentioned, Moses the Deliverer. He was an obvious picture of Jesus himself because Moses said so, Deuteronomy 18, 15.
0: The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him.
1: So, Julie, your your question from a few moments ago, why Moses and why Elijah? Because they represent the two key players that bring the New Testament into focus. They represent, Elijah represents John the Baptist. It's obvious because the angel Gabriel says so. And then Moses is representative of Jesus. It's obvious because Moses himself said so. So you have these two very significant individuals picturing two New Testament individuals, and the world is going to change because of John the Baptist and then specifically Jesus. And we know that because in John 1.45, we're getting a bigger picture of this.
0: Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph.
1: So you've got this proclamation. This is the one of whom Moses and the Law and the Prophets wrote. So you got this outside proclamation showing that Jesus is the centerpiece. So the Old Testament was setting us up. So let's recap the end of the Old Testament. What do we know so far?
2: Well, first of all, that's really cool that the Old Testament predicted the New, and the New Testament is picking that back up. So you see how intertwined they are. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, and um, so and and, and and that's and that's 400 years later. See, understand, you have the Old Testament ending, and 400 years later, it's as though not an extra second went by. So it is really cool. You're right. Anyway, yeah. what have we got so far? Let's go.
2: Okay, so Malachi uh, he ends the Old Testament with those same harsh warnings against evil that we've seen before last week. And I might add, we still aren't listening. Like, look at the headlines. There's so much evil going on around
0: us. (laughs) And also, hope is added for the faithful amid the destruction of evil.
2: Moses and Elijah are referenced as key prophets.
0: And Elijah is clearly referenced by the angel Gabriel to continue through John the Baptist.
1: So we've got several pieces that are undeniably in place. And why is this important, folks? Because if you want the answer to the question, is God's wrath stronger than his love, you have to be willing to look at the whole picture. This is showing us a a very significant connection. So as we conclude this introduction, if you will, the New Testament picks up, Jonathan, you said it already, it picks up exactly where the Old Testament ended. The only difference is God's plan is now taking a giant leap forward by bringing Jesus, not Moses, but bringing Jesus, the new deliverer, onto the scene. Last week we talked about something we called the pattern of promise. This pattern of promise that we did uncover in the last episode is beginning to appear, and it's going to begin to come very, very clear in in our next segment. So, Jonathan, now, you know, last week we talked about understanding God's wrath. This week, we want to talk about understanding God's wrath in the context of God's love. What do we have? We cannot
0: judge the Old Testament as a complete story, as it obviously is connected to the new. Judging God's wrath without seeing where it leads is like judging the beauty of a building by looking at it when only the foundation is in place.
1: And who would, who would dare to make a judgment, well, wow, that building doesn't look like it's going to be very good, when you, all you have is a foundation. The foundation gives you the shape of what the building will look like, but you don't know. You don't know yet. So we need to see the whole picture. So as we look at this whole thing, it's simple. The generations of Old Testament experiences show us an unrelenting battle between good and evil that God will win.
0: Where does the precise path of God's plan begin to bring humanity from his wrath into his love?
1: Okay, where does that start? Well, because God is the God of eternity, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that he is never in a hurry. When God deems a lesson needs to be taught, he will teach it in such a way as to have its results be impactful and lasting. God created humanity to be a family and he is teaching us just how to do that.
2: So I have two undeniable statements. Through the lineage of Adam, everyone dies, can't deny that, and we need a long-term solution for everyone.
1: Two undeniable statements, you're right. We we death is is a is a a complete fixture. And there needs to be a long-term solution. So, we want to find the path to God's love. So as we set the stage for this path, we're going to look at those solutions, that that long-term solution you're talking about. As we set the stage for this path, let's be reminded of one thing that all humanity will have in common, and that is resurrection. All humanity will have that in common. Jesus was specific about this. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to John 5, 28 and 29.
0: Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, judgment in the Greek-English lexicon means a separating, a trial, or judgment. And what it doesn't mean is damnation, like King James, the King James translation. That word grossly misleads us.
1: Yeah, so and that's an important factor to, to understand what the word really truly means and, and instead of what it was interpreted to mean uh in, in specific translations. In either case, Jesus is talking about two different kinds of resurrections. He's talking one a resurrection of life and another a resurrection of judgment. In either case, either case, this is a monumental personal miracle done for each and every human who ever lived. Monumental personal personal miracle for each and every human who ever lived.
2: So can we go back to our discussion from part one about the city of Sodom? You know, we remember that Sodom was a Canaanite city. It was destroyed because they were so violent and evil. How come God just didn't save Sodom with supernatural intervention? And I think the answer to that would help us understand why God isn't intervening in today's violence, evil, and disease?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Let's go back, because at the end of our, our, our last episode, we, we very near the end, we, we discussed Sodom and Jesus' perspective on Sodom. So let's, let's look at that. Jonathan, let's go back again, a little bit of review with some expansion here. Matthew 11, 23 and 24.
0: And you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that occurred in Sodom which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus here proclaims two important things. One, if the miracles that Jesus did were done in Sodom, the city would still exist. And two, there is a door of progress left clearly open in the day of judgment.
2: Okay, so that's my whole thing. If the miracles of Jesus were done in Sodom, the city would still exist. Why didn't God intervene? Why weren't they sent somebody to warn them?
1: Because God's plan at that point in time was not about miraculously giving people a way out. It was about showing them righteousness and giving them a choice and God's free plan, will again right. like Jonathan said. And God's plan if you notice now is not about miraculously bailing people out, but showing them, giving them free will, giving them a choice. And you know God's plan in Jesus time, interesting, was not about miraculously bailing people out. It was about showing them free will and giving them a choice. It's always the same. So we have to understand that. And you're, and you're right, it comes down to obedience to the almighty God instead of obedience to me wanting to be my own God. so Okay.
2: Well, but, it does sound like this is another bridge that Jesus gives us between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because he's kind of going to the old and pulling it forward into the new for lessons.
1: Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a very, very big bridge, and it's a very big principle to see that Sodom has opportunity in the future. That's a huge bridge. So now let's establish the beginning of the pathway through God's wrath to God's love. Because, folks, if you want to understand God's wrath, You have to look at it as a point along the road that's bringing you to a different destination. God's love is the destination, and it does pass through God's wrath. And that might sound a little odd. Stay with us and let's unfold it. There are several things we need to recognize for God's anger to fully subside. The first thing is God's initial requirement from humanity was obedience to Him always. Let me say that again. God's initial requirement from humanity was obedience to him always. In our last episode, we touched on Adam not remaining obedient. His choice was to do something God strictly forbade him to do.
2: Okay. Again, from part one, though, (laughs) Adam and Eve hadn't experienced death. They took a bite of fruit. They took a bite of fruit. The resulting punishment on them, and in turn on all of us, doesn't seem to fit the crime. Was that appropriate?
1: Their sin was not taking a bite of fruit. Their sin was deciding to follow Satan's advice, and that was contrary to God's. Their sin was to disobey their Creator, who gave them very simple, straightforward laws and rules. Their their sin was to not obey. Now look— Adam was not ignorant. He had not been born yesterday. You know the phrase, well, I wasn't born yesterday. Well, neither had Adam. He hadn't, while he he didn't have any experience with death, he did have a dramatic, a dramatic appreciation for life. Let's look at Genesis chapter two, verses 19 to 20.
0: Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gives names to all the cattle, to the
1: birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. So this is not something you do overnight. Adam got to know the animals and looked at their their their, their, their personalities, if you will, their characteristics, and he named them accordingly. So he got to know his surroundings. He had tremendous experience with God's magnificence and his creation. And Adam still willfully sinned. He willfully disobeyed God and followed what Satan said. And that's dis- that willful disobedience brought severe consequences. Disobedience always brings consequences. It wasn't about the fruit. it was about the choice. And when we look at this, we got to look at it now through a New Testament lens, Romans chapter five verses 12 and 14.
0: Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type, or picture, of him who was to come.
1: So what we see in that scripture in Romans, again, a New Testament look at the Old Testament and the things that happened with Adam and the sin and the choice, Adam's family— was allowed to exist within the context of sin. God didn't wipe out all humanity. He just allowed them to exist within the context of now being sinful in nature. Because sin now reigned, God required the human family to present sacrifices to him to show their efforts at obeying him. Well, these sacrifices were to be of their
0: flocks and were there to picture the necessity of justice a life sacrificed for a sinful life lived.
1: And this is an important perspective to to understand the Old Testament, and we're going to get into sacrifices a lot more in a few minutes. But the point is, because man disobeyed God, there was a consequence and there was a continual reaching back to try to be in harmony with God. When you're out of harmony with God, you're sinful. You You can't directly communicate. So sacrifices were put in place to show that they needed something to pay for their sins. That's what this was really all about. Now, this principle was very obviously passed on to all of Adam's children because we see this idea of sacrifices throughout the whole Old Testament. So it's unequivocal. This this was passed on. And what happened when this was passed on? Well, remember very early on, like two of the firstborn, Cain and Abel, remember what happened with them? Cain murdered Abel. Why would he do that? Because Cain wanted to sacrifice his own way. There was a method in place. Cain wanted to do it his own way. And he ended up murdering his brother out of the jealousy of of not having his sacrifice accepted. So you've got this idea of sacrifice to show that you have been removed from God, and it shows your desire to come close to him. And the shedding of blood is an important factor. And just fast forward very quick, that's why Jesus had to die. He had to shed his blood. That was the justice required. But let's fast forward now to the flood of Noah's time. You've got to ask the question here because we've been talking about the destruction of the Old Testament. Why did God destroy all of the people except for those on the ark? Well, aside from the fallen angel debacle, humanity had reached a tipping point. Well,
0: Rick, about the fallen angels, they contaminated the human race by impregnating women and created a hybrid race called the Nephilim, which means giants on the earth.
1: And it was completely out of harmony with God's plan. And there's, folks, when there's great disharmony with the plan and purposes and righteousness of God, there's always consequence. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter when you live, that's the case.
2: So what do you mean by humanity reached a tipping point?
1: Okay, humanity reached a tipping point. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5.
0: Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. So their evil came to its full measure.
1: So the tipping point was that they were only interested in evil. And that's what Genesis six, five describes very, very plainly. And so you have this, this, overt, just like the Canaanites. Remember, we talked about that in our last episode and how dark their lives became. God preserved righteousness that was found in Noah and his family as he destroyed an evil society whose iniquity was complete. And that is very common to what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. Evil has grave consequences. And those, not to be funny, but those grave consequences lead to the grave. That's exactly what happens with all of this. So you've got it shown in in the account of Noah. Generations later, we've got Abraham. And again, we talked about Abraham in our last episode. We spoke of him being God's chosen to establish that pattern of promise that we began to really focus on. And what we're going to see is this pattern of promise is everything because it started in the Old Testament and it shines out in the new testament so let's look at how the new testament expands this pattern of promise let's go to galatians chapter 3 verses 6 to 9 but jonathan let's just do verse 6 to start with
0: even so abraham believed god and it was reckoned to him as righteousness
1: okay abraham had left his father's house he had believed god and that belief produced obedience and what do we keep saying the scriptures tell us what's the most important thing obedience obedience (laughs) absolutely and so you see that abraham is living what he's professing see belief is not just a profession it's the living of that abraham was doing that let's go to verses seven and eight of galatians three
0: therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of abraham the scripture foreseeing that god would justify the gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to abraham Saying, All the nations will be blessed in you.
2: Okay, so all the nations, that's exciting because here we see the blessings, this pattern of promise that would go beyond just the Jewish people and Israel promised way back
1: when. Right. So you see that that promise talked about all the nations being blessed. Remember when we talked about Malachi, it was like only the, 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 the faithful seemed to be right. having advantage here. Those
2: that reverenced God. Yes. Right.
1: But see here, through those that reverenced God, you see this hint of all the nations being blessed. And how come? Why? It's because of belief and obedience. That anyone, from any background, can now, as that promise in in Galatians said, can now come to Christ. This shows us the development of this pattern of promise in a unique way, because the call to be favored of God is now expanded. And let's go to verse 9 of Galatians 3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So, to be blessed with Abraham is to be in the company of the father of the faithful.
2: Part of the blessings is that Gentiles were invited to be followers of Jesus. To be blessed with Abraham, like him, we have to be obedient in our faith. So it's starting to look like obedience is the true expression of our belief. And it reminds me of that scripture in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice.
1: You're, you, that's exactly, exactly the point. Folks, just understand that God's wrath is because of disobedience god's love ultimately comes because of obedience why because god is the creator and we need to understand his role in our lives so jonathan let's wrap this piece up understanding god's wrath in the context of god's love
0: obedience is always a key adam and so many others showed us what not to do follow human desire god's wrath is kindled against those who mock him but we can see His wrath is absent with those who believe and obey.
1: You know, and we're talking about God's wrath kindled against those who mock Him, but absent from those who believe and obey. We're not—it's it, not necessarily God's not judging individuals. You know, in 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 the past and in the present, it's about judging systems. It's about judging uh, the, the way humanity thinks. His wrath is against that, but He will honor and bless those who honor and bless him. So we want to be clear who falls into righteous here and the fact that everybody's not being looked at God with the eyes of wrath, like, oh, you're terrible. I'm going to just wipe you out. That's, that's not God's plan. So God's plan unfolds over time and sometimes takes a giant leap forward. This next giant leap, his name is Jesus. We
0: know that Jesus fulfilled the law and changed things. Does that mean he appeased God's anger?
1: This is an important question, as many seem to believe that without Jesus, God would be out of control with vengeance and wrath. Nothing is further from the truth. As we shall see, God's anger is against anything and everything sinful, and his plan, (laughs) his plan is to systematically eradicate all such things.
2: One of the false teachings held by some Christians is that God is vengeful and full of wrath, bent on slaying or torturing much of the human family. And further, this view asserts it's only through the intervention of Jesus who mercifully placated God's anger by taking the sinner's place in death that mankind might be saved from such a fate. Why is this an incorrect way to look at it?
1: Well, first of all, that is not only incorrect, it is absolutely insulting to the Creator. It is so far off of true. I just can't even begin to describe to you. So so here, let's do this. Let's try to, to wrap up the things that we've looked up, looked at so far and put this all in perspective. Let's consider the issue of disobedience. We've been talking about the importance of obedience. The issue of disobedience and sin as ap- appears before God. We know that sin was allowed to reign because of Adam's sin, and every human being inherits inherits a sinful life. So here's the plan. Here's God's plan. First, show humanity the need for justice through the sacrificing of animals. Then, find a faithful individual named Abraham to reveal your plan to. Promise him that because of his obedience and his allegiance to your plan, that your plan will be accomplished through he and his posterity, and in the end, will bless all of humanity. Now, once his posterity is ready, and this takes generation, rescue them from hard slavery, which is caused by the sinfulness of man, and we're talking about the slavery in Egypt, through Moses the Deliverer. Then show them what obedience and community should look like through a law. Now, this law will be unlike any law ever given to any nation. And even though they cannot keep this law perfectly because they're sinful, show them that this law reflects the standards of true obedience. So when we look at that great big picture, what we see is intentional actions building an intentional road that intentionally brings humanity toward God. God is not this vindictive being that needs Jesus to calm him down. God is the architect And he's showing us, small step by small step, the artistry of the harmony of his plan.
0: The Galatian church was being influenced by Christians who were teaching that Christianity needs the Jewish law as part of its belief system. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is resolving this error, verses 10 through 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them now that no one is justified by the law before god is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith however the law is not a faith on the contrary he who practices them shall live by them now thinking about it the law was just a list of rules god gave to moses for the israelites to follow and there wasn't just the ten commandments There were actually hundreds of parts to the law, somewhere around 600 rules.
2: And you could say that the law, in in a way, itemized sin, because it's very detailed about what should and shouldn't be done.
1: Yeah, and actually, that's a really good description. The law did itemize sin, because it helped the average sinful individual who would pay attention to it to see what's right and what's wrong. Now, it talks about, in that Galatian scripture, the curse of the law. Well, the curse of the law is the curse of death, because if you don't keep the law, death happens. Well, people were dying. God gave them a way to continue to live through sacrifice and so forth in the law. Imperfect humans are not able to, by works, fulfill a law that brings you into God's favor. We're too broken in sin. Faith, not the law, is what's actually needed here.
2: And this could get pretty technical. So we do recommend our two-part series in episodes 1155 and 1156. Is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? And the role each play in making our Christian faith transformative. Just put the episode number, 1155, 1156, in the search bar at christianquestions.com or on the Christian Questions app. But my question, Rick, is why bother giving a law that no one is able to keep perfectly?
1: (laughs) See, there's always another question. And that's good because there's always another answer. And by asking the questions, we find the answers and we put God's, God's harmonious plan in order. So why bother with a law if people can't live up to it? I, that's, a, that's a huge, important question. Like, isn't God just setting them up for failure? No, right. he's actually setting them up for success. The book of Hebrews is what's going to help us with this. So we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 3.
0: For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins." But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year.
1: So it talks about in the sacrifices, they're reminded of sin. So the the law would buy them time. It would buy them time. It would buy them time. And at the beginning of that verse that Jonathan just read, it says, the law, uh, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, a shadow of good things to come. What happens when you follow a shadow? What it does is it brings you to the reality And on your way, you're constantly reminded of the high standards of acceptability to God. That's what the law did. Like you said, Julie, it itemized what sin is. And there was a lot to sin. So it had to be itemized and show them all the ways that sinful humanity falls short. And the reality of all of this, the reality is the man Christ Jesus. And we know that because the next verses, going back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, that's what these verses tell us.
0: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith.
1: So, you have Christ as the man here. God's love is beginning to come out from behind the clouds of imperfect human conclusions. It's not the clouds of God's word. It's the clouds of imperfect human conclusions. The law was an impossibility, yet it was a very necessary step towards God.
2: What this Hebrews verse um, about the shadow and uh, the reality of it, you know, that, that really tells me that the people that say, the Christians that say, oh, I only study the New Testament, They're missing out because so much of what's in the New Testament is built upon from the Old Testament. And, you know, you look at that Old Testament and you see what happened and you're being told right here, there's a bigger lesson to it. Go back and look at that and now see it being bigger. So, Jonathan, you read, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We're going to talk about that blessing of Abraham in, in a minute. But now we see... Jesus being able to keep the law in all points was proof that he was the promised Messiah, but not just for the Jews or Christians, but for everybody. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All get that personal miracle of resurrection, of being saved from Adamic death. What you do after
1: that is up to you. And so the plan does begin to come and come into play. And, and Julie, I'm glad you, you brought out the point about the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. We need the, the pictures in the Old Testament to show us what the New Testament, the value of it. We need the things that lead right up to the, to the New Testament to show us how it all works. So when we're looking at this, It says that, okay, Jesus is the man, and he dies, and he's a sacrifice. Now remember, in our previous scriptures, in the previous Hebrew scripture, we're talking about sacrifices, and they're offering these sacrifices again and again and again, year by year by year. Now let's go a little further. Let's go back to Hebrews, because Hebrews and Galatians work together really well here. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, and let it explain to us a little bit more about the why with all of these sacrifices and the importance of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 4 to 7. For it
0: is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins therefore when he comes into the world he says sacrifice an offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will o god
1: see the message here is abundant and clear All those sacrifices bought time for those who would have allegiance to God until the time was complete for the actual sacrifice to appear. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, but it was possible for them to buy time.
0: Does this sound like an angry and vengeful God? sounds like a God that cares. Here he is showing us step by step the way back to him. We have to remember what mankind lost in the Garden of Eden. Among other things, we lost a relationship with God.
1: Yeah, and that's so important. To, now, what does it cost to get that relationship back? Everything. You've got to put everything in order, and God has to show us step by step by step. You know, It's like when somebody falls down a really, really big cliff, you know, they don't just jump back up to the top. They have to claw their way up, step by step, and there's treachery and there's difficulty and you slide and you slip down again. That's what, that's what God is doing. He's showing us, here's how to climb back up. Here's how to climb back up. And then when the time came, Jesus catapulted that plan much, much further. Let's continue with Galatians 3, 16 to 18.
0: Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ.
1: So now that pattern of promise, that promise given to Abraham, Paul is deepening the meaning of the original promise as he clearly shows that Jesus is the seed, the Messiah, which the promise was centered upon. Let's go to verses 17 and 18.
0: What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later after Abraham does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by god so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance is based on law it is no longer based on a promise but god has granted it to abraham by means of a promise
1: so what does all of that mean we've we what, what what the apostle is saying is the promise was given and then 430 years later the old testament law was given and he's saying that Old Testament law didn't cancel out the promise, but built upon it. Even though the law came and it was given to an entire nation to follow for thousands of years, it does not, it cannot invalidate the original promise that God made to Abraham.
2: That promise to Abraham was first given in Genesis 12, 3. And it said, in, in you, all the families of the earth, all. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a huge promise. And it gets repeated several times. It never expired to this day, but yet it still hasn't been fulfilled because we don't see all the families of the earth being blessed today. So it's still hanging out there.
0: It, it is. And the law was given because of the promise, not in spite of the promise. It was the next step to fulfilling the promise.
1: Yeah, it's not as though, you know, God gives the promise and then all this time goes by and it's not looking so good so it gets forgotten. Okay, now I'll give a law instead. No, 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 no. The law was built specifically to be built upon the promise because it was given to the nation to show them the pathway towards God. So the pattern of promise is verified through the law. Once again, the pattern of promise is simply verified. And the
0: law served many purposes, Rick. First, it created accountability for Israel.
1: It did. And you need to understand how important it is to have accountability be recognizable. You can't expect someone to live up to something if they don't know what the standards are. So the law was this flashing warning sign of here are the standards of righteousness. Here are the standards of righteousness. This is what you need to live up to. So the law was a really important part of God's love of God's plan of bringing man back to him slowly step by step by step. Jonathan understanding God's wrath in the context of God's love, what do we have?
0: Well, before that, there are several other points on the law and the purposes of it. And Julie has one.
2: Uh, well, okay, so it kept Israel separate from the other nations who worshiped idols and got way off track. We saw that with those Amalekites and the Canaanites that we talked about last week, the law made the Israelites different on purpose and it helped them focus on God and help them focus on living a righteous life.
0: And also it identified sin. It showed that fallen man could not live in harmony with God. We become more humble and teachable when we realize how much we need Jesus to help us overcome sin and become closer to God.
2: It gave the people a specific way to follow God and live a prosperous human life.
0: And lastly, it proved that a perfect man could keep God's perfect law pointing to Jesus.
1: Okay, so there's a lot to this law. It is not this simple thing given to this one little nation and then forgotten later. It is a major stepping stone, just like the promise was a major stepping stone. It's a major stepping stone back toward God back toward righteousness understanding god's wrath in the context of his love what do we have
0: what the old testament really reveals about god is this his standards are based on righteousness and obedience and he thankfully stands contrary to and punishes sin from day one of humanity's existence he has been systematically showing us what true righteousness looks like and how to be obedient to it in order to prepare us for eternity
1: so this is a big big part of understanding god's love and it's all part of the old testament thus far so it's inspiring to look at god's true character and purposes as they explode into plain view you see the bible does reveal all
0: so if god is benevolent and wise as we have suggested he is how does this all work out
1: well We all like a happy ending, but we usually don't much like the twists and turns a real life drama must take to get to that happy ending. Bottom line is the destiny of humanity is a big and complex real life drama that continues to unfold before our eyes. And the good news is none of this is beyond the grasp, the wisdom, or the power of God himself. So how does this all work out? We're watching God's plan unfold in places that most of us never thought it was possible. We thought it was arbitrary, perhaps, but now we see it is actually architecturally designed to bring us to something greater. Before we go further, one more important point regarding the law be, uh, being brought to Israel. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Galatians three nineteen and 22.
0: Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, meaning no one exempt from sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, we see that the law not only demonstrated what sin is, but the process of the law being instituted by a mediator was to show how everlasting righteousness would be
1: instituted. So there is a lot here helping us understand that the law not only was a flashing sign for then, but it was a picture, a symbol, a a a, a, a kind of like a, a guidebook for what was going to happen later. Paul expands our understanding of this part of God's plan and perspective in his first letter to Timothy. Let's look at first Timothy chapter two, verses three to six. This is
0: good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires—now that Greek word here means to be resolved or determined, not just a wish or a hope—continuing, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge, meaning full discernment of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This is unconditional. All we all will be saved by resurrection out of the death and in out of the death we inherited from adam
2: and now notice the order that you read there, Jonathan. All men are saved, so they're resurrected, and then come to the knowledge the full discernment of the truth. Many churches today say you have to believe on Jesus now or else. Your toast, <laughs> you know, regardless of your circumstances. But there's so much misinformation out there that finally mankind will be given all the knowledge, the full discernment that they need to make a decision on how they want to live from then on, from their resurrection on. Do they want to be obedient to God's righteous ways or still doing evil Even after they saw its devastating and traumatic path. So that's why you both have said before that the day of judgment is a good thing because you're raised, given your personal miracle, and then rehabilitated and given knowledge, healing, and you claw your way back up that mountain uh, for forgiveness and learning.
1: So. When we look at these scriptures, you know, we looked at the Galatian scripture that talked about the law being given through a mediator, who was Moses. And then we look at 1 Timothy, saying that there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You can see that the law and the way it was given is a picture, is a guidebook to what's going to happen with all of humanity. The law was given to the full nation. Jesus is the mediator for all of the world, that personal miracle of resurrection you put you in position so Jesus can mediate between you and God. So God is the author of the plan that redeems all of humanity, and Jesus is the way, the way that we are all redeemed. To learn more
0: on the ransom, see episode 1034, Did Jesus Really Die for Everyone? This scripturally pinpoints the extent and reach of Jesus's ransom.
1: Alright, let's go a little bit further with Galatians. Now let's go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 29.
0: Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith is come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's Greek English lexicon says, A tutor is a guardian and guide of boys. Among the Greeks and Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed to, so much as to step out of the house without being without them being arriving at the age of manhood.
2: So the law is a tutor or some translations say schoolmaster to Israel in the sense that it acted as a restraint on their human nature in order to prevent them from becoming degraded like the other nations. It showed them their weaknesses and need for self-control. And it prepared them, as you've been saying, Rick, to recognize their need for Jesus.
1: And it's also saying in Galatians that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. In other words, the principles of the law will bring you directly to Jesus. And that's why having an understanding of the Old Testament is so important in this whole picture. The progression of God's plan shows us that what was once used to identify sin is no longer the overriding influence that brings us to God. Why? Because, as Galatians already said, faith has come. And we now understand sin, and we can tr- what can truly remove it from us, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus. And let's continue with Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29.
0: For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise." Jesus, as Abraham's seed, is the direct inheritor of blessing all the families of the world. We also inherit this privilege, as we are part of him. We are part of the one seed. And it mentions that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ.
1: So again, trying to wrap up that Galatians factor and the things that it's talking about, it's saying, now if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's descendants. Remember it said there's just one seed here, and that's Jesus. But now it's saying you're part of that. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians it says you're part of the body of Christ. So all of you are, the, are, 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 are what's there to bless the families of the earth. And then we saw that Jesus is a mediator. So you can see that the blessing of the family, families of the earth comes through the mediation of Jesus and his true followers for all of those who receive that personal miracle of resurrection.
2: So basically the point is, how do we get mankind back to God? Because Adam sinned. We had Abraham who was faithful, so he got to have the relationship with God, got to put the law in place so that the Israelites could have a relationship with God. And that was a bridge that was waiting until the actual solution came, which was Jesus. Once Jesus comes, we don't need the law anymore because now through Jesus, we can have the relationship with God. Right. Is that That's right.
1: Right, right, exactly. And that's the, God's love. Right, and God had the plan in place all along and brought us through that path.
2: Right. All right, so let's go back to that first scripture that we talked about today. That was Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, and every evildoer will be chaff, and that day is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So once again, there's this time of God's anger against sin. We just talked about all this love. Where does all the anger fit
1: in? Well, the anger fits in because <laughs> look around you, folks. Look at the world around you. How are we doing in terms of God's righteousness? And the answer is pretty lousy. And when to to end this age— the anger of God again appears. It's necessary because sinful actions, reactions, sinful rules, sinful laws only bring death and destruction. And so that's what we're facing here, and that's what Malachi 4.1 is talking about. It's talking about the end of the age, our time, our period of time. And look, make no mistake, trouble is coming. We can see that in the world around us right now. Matter of fact, let's read another trouble scripture. Let's go to Zephaniah 3, verse 8.
0: Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation— All my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal.
2: You know, here we go again, more imagery of burning and fire. And for those of our listeners who have heard Christian questions over the years, you know that we do not believe in a burning hellfire. But even if this is symbolic, it's still wrathful and scary. Should we be afraid of what these scriptures are telling us?
0: Well, this is talking about this present evil world and Satan's sinful governments. It is sin that has to be eradicated.
1: So should we be afraid? We should be aware. But if you have faith and you believe in the plan of God, it is nothing to fear. Is it hard? Yes. Can it be very difficult for you? Yes, absolutely. But our fear should be that we are not in obedience to God personally, and we should focus ourselves on that. So instead of being a here-we-go-again moment, this is actually a here-is-how-we-move-forward moment. And why do we say that? Because we just read Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, all about sin or anger and wrath. Let's read Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, the very next verse.
0: For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder.
1: So it says, for then, after all this wrath, I will give them purified lips. This is God's plan in two verses. God's anger over and destruction of sin because of disobedience, and then he leaves the people with purity. There is a dramatic change there, and that's what God's plan is really about. And these are the resurrected peoples
2: of earth. You don't have lips that serve in a burning hell, so this completely dismantles any idea of eternal torment. These people have been purified, rehabilitated after their resurrection.
1: Yeah, and, and so, you know, as, as we begin to, to wind this all up, you know, one of the things we need to understand is the necessity for eradicating sin. And we've talked about sin always brings consequences. You know what else sin always brings? It always brings collateral damage. Sin and disobedience bring collateral damage unequivocally, all the time and if you look at what's going on in the world right now you look at at the invasion by russia of ukraine for instance the world looks at this and they see this individual bringing his armies into this country completely unprovoked and the world is saying you got to stop the guy got to stop the guy got to stop the guy and how do we try to do that through sanctions and what do sanctions do they hurt the people of russia But we're willing to say, you got to stop the guy, and we're willing to have those people be hurt because he's doing something so awful. And yet we look at God when he judges sin and say, you shouldn't do that. Folks, let's see and understand that God's plan understands the collateral damage of sin, and his anger is to end all of that by having his plan unfold through Jesus.
2: And by taking out Satan, eventually. (laughs)
1: Well, that's the whole point. And it's funny,
2: you know, we always want God to step in and intervene, but when he did that in the Old Testament, some criticize him for destroying evil, you know, but we want want the evil to be destroyed.
1: So let's look at the other side of this. Let's look at a further prophetic look at the end result of all of these hard teachings. Jonathan, let's go to a prophecy that's very positive, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3.
0: And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples, and render decisions for mighty, distant nations. Then... They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Well, there are many other prophecies that echo this description of God's kingdom on earth, such as Isaiah 25, verse 8.
1: Look it up. So so the next time, folks, the next time you're confronted with the question, is God's wrath stronger than his love? We've gone through a lot of things that Micah scripture is very, very poignant. But remember this next verse, because it shows us the character of God. James chapter 1, verses 17 to 18.
0: Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be kind of a first fruits among His creatures."
1: Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And when you understand the plan of God throughout the whole Bible, you see this goodness and perfection and, and grace shining. But you have to go and put the Bible together. So finally, let's go back to where we started, understanding God's wrath and the context of His love.
0: The scriptures have, clear, uh, have made it clear. God has a plan. He is not impetuous or egotistical. He is wise, just, and loving.
2: God believes in free choice. His highest creations all have it, and free choice is a tool
0: of righteousness. God is moral. His morality is eternal, and he has used the human experience to teach it to us.
2: God uses evil. He's not evil, nor does he fall prey to it, for God, evil is a method to accomplish his plan.
1: And when we see the scriptures in light of those things, the whole picture changes. We need to understand the power and love in God's plan right from the beginning. So God
0: is love, and in a bigger way than any of us could imagine.
1: And you know, that's the important thing. It is bigger than we can can get our, our heads around. And that's why studying the Bible, for me, for my entire lifetime, I still find new things about the love of God, the magnitude of His plan. Because the Bible is so complex and so detailed in teaching us the mind of God, we have to just be patient enough to look for it and find it so we can give him the honor and praise he deserves because he is the God of eternity. He is a God of creation. He is a God of goodness and righteousness and grace and mercy and love. God's wrath takes away sin so his love can reign eternally. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions and your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. we greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, Can Faith Take Me From Failure? victory. Can faith take me from failure to victory? Talk to you then.